Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. Thank you for joining us here online for our Sunday gathering. I hope you're all adjusting to the new nine o'clock start time. For those of you who joined us at nine o'clock, for those of you who are watching, watching this later, obviously that doesn't apply to you. But we are excited to gather together even on Facebook and YouTube and try to connect with each other and turn our hearts and our thoughts and our attention to God as we seek to find out what it means to genuinely encounter God in different ways in our lives. That's what I've been teaching about uh, for about the past month. And we have a few more weeks of this series left. And I hope that you will hang in there and join with me today as we talk about meeting God in minute stillness or silence. Before we jump into the text today, I want to ask as usual that you would just join me for a word of prayer. God, we just come before you wherever we sit today and we ask that you would quiet our hearts enough during this time, wherever we might be, wherever we're watching from, however we are tuning in to this time. I pray that as we approach these passages of Scripture, that you would clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds so that we could be still this morning and have a genuine encounter with you. We ask God that you would meet us in the stillness of this space and that you would teach us how to cultivate that stillness or that quiet in our lives so that we have a sense of always being connected to your divine presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you guys know that Janelle and I were able to get away about two weeks ago and go on a short camping trip. Uh, what we did was we, we packed up the truck and the trailer and we went off to southern Utah and took our paddle boards and did something that we had never done before. We went and paddle boarded in some of the most amazing canyons in southern Utah. And the scenery was just incredible. One of the things that we really encountered maybe for the first time was the sense of being in nature, but being in the midst of absolute serenity or peacefulness. And the way we experienced that was we we're on a lake in southern Utah that has all of these deep canyons that are filled with water. And every day we would get up and we would put our paddle boards in the lake and we would paddle across the lake and find one of these canyons and then we would go explore. And as we paddled down these canyons, they would get narrower and narrower as they sort of twisted and turned. And in some cases, they would get higher and higher. And of course, paddle boards don't have an engine. So the farther back into these canyons we got on our paddle boards, the quieter it became because all of the normal noises outside were drowned out by these enormous canyon walls on either side of us. There were times when we were paddling down these canyons that would be oftentimes 20 or 30 feet or more above us, but the walls of the canyons might only be 10 or 12 feet wide. So we were in a very narrow, very tall space, and it had this sense of being in a kind of outdoor sanctuary. It was really an amazing experience for us. And it brought to mind for me the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that goes like this. He says, nature is too thin a screen. The glory of the omnipresent God bursts through everywhere. And I thought about that quote 
as we were there on these paddle boards experiencing this incredible outdoor silence or stillness or serenity because that really was the feeling like we were surrounded by all of this rich biodiversity, this incredible geographic architecture, and yet at the same time, it felt like we were utterly and completely alone, and there was just a, a thinness to that space that almost felt like we could reach through it and touch something divine on the other side. And, and sometimes I think that's exactly what Emerson was talking about in that quote. In our passage today, I want to share a story with you that I think is very similar to that sense of being in a still and quiet, thin space where we can encounter God. This passage is from 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 9 and read a couple of these passages together. But first, let me just give you a little bit of a backstory here. 1 Kings chapter 19 picks up the story of the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah had a pretty tough job in his day. He was the prophet who was tasked with coming against an evil king and the evil king's wife or queen. This is the story of Ahab and Jezebel and how Ahab and Jezebel had abandoned the worship of the one true God and were beginning to incorporate pagan worship practices into the life of the Israelites. And Elijah, as the prophet, was called by God to call them out for these practices. And right before this passage in verse 19, or chapter 19 that we're about to read, is the famous passage in 1 Kings 18 that describes this great showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and all of the prophets of Baal. And that showdown, of course, is where Elijah calls them out and challenges them to a kind of godly duel. And the, all the prophets of Baal come out and they, they cry out and they scream out and they call for their God to bring fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice on the altar and yet nothing happens. We visited this passage uh, about a month or so ago and I told you that one of the funny things about that passage in 1 Kings 18 is that Elijah sort of mocks the prophets of Baal, calls them out for their God who might be asleep or might have gone away on a trip and so therefore doesn't hear them. And then, of course, Elijah, when it's his turn, he simply prays a prayer and a giant pillar of fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altar, and demonstrates once and for all that the God of Israel is the one true God. That's this incredibly dramatic scene that we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, when that happens, the Israelites, they rise up and they get rid of all of the prophets of Baal. But King Ahaz and Queen Jezebel are incensed by this. They're furious that Elijah has done this. And so they threaten his life. Essentially, Jezebel goes to Elijah and says, all that has happened to my priests of Baal, may that happen to you and more. May that happen to me and more if I don't take out my revenge on you. She essentially swears an oath to kill Elijah for what he's done. And so Elijah, even though he's had this incredible victory in 1 Kings chapter 18, he's afraid for his life and he's discouraged, so he flees into the desert here in 1 Kings chapter 19. And this is where we pick up the story. Elijah travels a day into the wilderness into 1 Kings chapter 19, and the messenger of God, or the angel of the Lord, or some 
personification of God comes to Elijah and engages with Elijah. And we're going to pick it up here in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. And so this is after the messenger of the Lord has come and talked with Elijah and given Elijah the opportunity to take a little bit of food and feel a little bit better. And then the messenger of God directs Elijah to go up onto Mount Horeb. And at that place he came to a cave and he spent the night there on Mount Horeb. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And here you can see that Elijah is feeling very sorry for himself. He's bringing his complaint to God. You know, God, I did exactly what you told me to do, and you did exactly what you said you were going to do, but it didn't turn out the way I expected, and, and now I'm frustrated and I'm afraid, and, and you know, somebody wants to kill me. Essentially, Elijah is saying, God, why does it have to be this way? How come this didn't turn out the way I wanted it to? Verse 11 says this. This is, the messenger of God in verse 11 says to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now we're going to pause right there because I want to point out a couple of things about this passage that I think are really helpful and really illuminating. The first is it's important, I think, to know that Elijah has gone to Mount Horeb, which in other books of the Bible are called, is called Mount Sinai. In other words, this is the very same mountain that Moses met God on. In fact, recently I preached on that passage about Moses going up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and how he encounters God in all of God's power and majesty and glory. This is that same mountain. In fact, this whole section of Scripture here in 1 Kings chapter 19 is meant to be a kind of echo of Moses. In other words, Elijah in this passage, this passage that is bracketed by this stylized use of this rhetorical question that God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Right? Remember that question was at the beginning of this passage, and now it's at the end of this passage. And right there in the middle, what we have is Elijah essentially walking in the footsteps of Moses. 
Moses is the great prophet of Israel, the prophet who saw God face to face, who encountered God on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, the great prophet who spoke out and said no to God when God wanted to eradicate the Israelites for not being faithful to him. Moses, remember, said no to God and reminded God of his promises to the people of Israel. This is that same place. And Elijah is reenacting that same journey. In fact, it says earlier in this passage that Elijah goes up for 40 days, which is the same number of days that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to meet God to receive the Ten Commandments. So you have all of these parallels in this story. But then we get to this amazing part of the story where those parallels begin to diverge. Because unlike the story of Moses meeting uh, God, where there is all of this you know, powerful wind and fire and tumult and a sort of a raw display of power, which is exactly what we saw in 1 Kings chapter 18, the passage before. Right in the, in the chapter before this, Elijah experiences this raw encounter with God that is displayed in the power of nature. These images of fire and wind and earthquake should bring to mind images of the story of the Israelites as Moses led them through the wilderness as well. And the people of Israel were, were led by a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. In other words, the presence of God was always there in characteristic displays of incredible power borrowed from nature. In other words, God's power was displayed through nature. And so what we see happening in this passage is really interesting because here God diverges from those raw displays of power. Instead, if you look back with me again here, instead, picking it up in uh, verse 11, God says to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain, for the Lord is about to pass by, and now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting the mountains and breaking the rock in pieces before the Lord, but it says, the Lord was not in the wind. And then after that, a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, a great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then the next bit of passage here is the key passage for us today, as we're looking at how it is that we see people encountering the presence of God in Scripture, because this is a pivotal moment. And it says this, But the Lord was not in the fire, verse 12, and after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. In the NRSV, it says sheer silence. In some of your Bibles, it might say a still, small voice. I really love the way the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter translates this passage. He calls it minute stillness. This idea that God was not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not in the storm, but instead was in the sound of minute stillness. That God was present in the emptiness of sheer silence is a testimony that we find witness to again and again throughout Christian history. Most of Christian history's most prolific mystics and theologians who have written on prayer and encounters with God have agreed with Elijah's characterization of how he meets God in this passage. They have said, 
that the most sure way to meet the presence of God is in minute stillness or sheer silence. I love the way the 16th century German uh, Lutheran mystic Jacob uh, Boemi wrote about this. He said, If you could be silent from all willing and thinking for one hour, you would hear God's inexpressible words. Similarly, John of the Cross, also from the 6th century, but a uh, a, a middle age, uh, a medieval age church father from what we now know of as the area of Spain, he wrote uh, similarly this, it's best to learn to silence the faculties and to cause them to be still so that God may speak. One of the common features that we see in all of the great religious traditions around prayer is that more often than not, prayer does not so much look like the endless repetition of words or, or the loud sounds and fury that we sometimes conjure up in order to get God's attention, sort of like the prophets of Baal who thought that if they screamed and yelled and tore at their clothes and cut themselves and made a spectacle of them, themselves that somehow they would get through to God, but rather the great religious traditions, including Judaism and Christianity, all have in, in common that their most intimate acts of prayer are acts that often occur in solitude and silence. And it's when we free ourselves of the noise of our lives, when we free ourselves of the distractions of our anxieties and worries and concerns and fears, and in our time, the great distractions of technology and entertainment and news, when we're able to distance ourselves from all of that rabble, then we find that in the stillness, we often can encounter some sense of God's presence. And it's not just external noise that we need to free ourselves from. I love the way the 20th century French mystic Simone Weil put this. She wrote, Above all, our thoughts should be empty, waiting, not seeking anything, but ready to receive its naked truth, the object that is to penetrate it. Simone Weil, I think, rightly locates the noise that tends to drown out the voice of God, not as coming from outside of us, but rather as coming from inside of us. And Simone Weil is not afraid to characterize this thin space of silence and stillness where we meet God in the most embarrassingly intimate terms saying that when we eradicate ourselves of that internal noise, then we find that God is there ready to impress himself upon us, to meet us in that quiet stillness. This uh, realization, I think, has a couple of implications for us. And the first is, is the implication that the essence of God may not be raw power. And isn't that sometimes how we, I think, tend to default towards our ideas of God, that, that when we think of what we call God, we think of power, we think of might, we think of strength, we, we think of omnipotence, the great, almighty, and all-powerful God. But 
What if what Elijah is revealing to us is that the essence of God is not the raw power of the fire that comes down from heaven? What if the essence of God is not the windstorm that sweeps through and eradicates everything in its path? What if the essence of God is not the earth, earthquake that splits the rocks and the mountains? What if the essence of God is that minute silence, that sheer stillness, that gentleness that characterizes the God who wants to meet us with that still, small voice that is so intimate and delicate and personal. I think that speaks to the nearness of God that we also see reflected in the words of Jesus, who says that God does not break a bent reed or uh, bruise uh, a bent reed or, or snuff out a smoldering wick, that the essence of God's character is gentleness, that picking up on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that God is here for those who are poor and those who are meek, that like Christ and Christ's calling to his followers, God is here for those who extend themselves to God from the margins, that God is meeting those who have been pushed out and ostracized and excluded, that God is calling those folks into his kingdom who are most fragile, most weak, most beaten down, and most downtrodden. What if that really is the essence of the character of God? And this, I think, reveals to us a second implication of this passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, and that is, if the essence of God is the minute silence or the still small voice that comes to us in that quiet place, then what are the implications of that for how we hear God as a church, for how we hear God and discern God in our times, in the things that are happening in our world? And I think the implication is this, that we oftentimes default to thinking that God's voice, that God's will, that God's purposes are made known to us by the loudest voices, by the most plentiful voices, by the majority who speaks out and says who God is and what is right and good and true. But if God's voice is the still, small voice, if it's the quiet voice that can be drowned out by the noise, and I think it's also true that sometimes God's will, God's purposes, God's desires are not expressed by the majority of voices, not expressed by the loudest voices, but oftentimes are expressed by the quietest voices, by the minority voices among us. And that is exactly what the prophets are in the Old Testament. They are the minority report. When the majority of the priests and the kings are going one way, the prophets like Elijah come along and they say, no, this is not God's way. This is not what God requires of you. This is not God's heart for you and your community. And if that's true, then Jesus, in saying that we encounter him, through the least of these would begin to make a lot more sense. Jesus says it's not just the minority voices or the quiet voices that often speak for God. Jesus says that it's literally those who are the least, the hungry, the poor, the naked, the imprisoned, where we don't just hear God, but Jesus says we encounter God in the flesh. 
you remember in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says that he comes to us as the poor, the hungry, the naked, and the imprisoned. And that means then as a church that if we want to have genuine encounters with God, that this isn't just about us cultivating a kind of personal meditative practice where we can quiet our hearts and experience God in the minute silence of those moments, although that is true. It also means that as a corporate body, as a church, it's our job to become disciplined enough to center those minority voices in our midst so we don't miss what God is trying to tell us. All of that, I know, can be really hard and really difficult and really vulnerable because we all want our way. And I think this is what Simone Weil is speaking to with her quote. I think that our main task is to let go of our own ego desires and allow God to speak to us in the stillness and in the quietness of our encounters with him. Today, my prayer is that we would learn to do that as a church, not just you individually, but that together as a church, we would learn to quiet ourselves, that we would learn to experience God in the still, small voice that comes to us in those moments of sheer silence, of minute stillness, and that we would be able to do that as a corporate body, that we would learn to center those voices who may, in their own stillness, their own meekness, be speaking a word of God to us. Today, I want to ask that you would just share in the comments on Facebook or YouTube, if you'd be willing, what are some of the ways that God has met you in stillness or silence or quiet? What were those times in your life that were characterized not by raw power, not by displays of uh, incredible power of nature or those incredible moments that seem so uh, overpowering, but what are the ways that God has met you in small, quiet, everyday ways? Uh, share that if you would on Facebook. Uh, encourage each other in the comments and help each other to learn more about how God meets all of us in these kinds of encounters. Before we go today, would you just pray with me one last time as we ask God to bless us this week? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to be together. We thank you for these words from 1 Kings chapter 19. We thank you that in this series, we are learning all of the different ways that you have encountered people who have sought to encounter you. We're thankful for how you reach out across the divide and meet us in so many different ways to fulfill our desires or to deny us our desires if that's what we need but instead to direct us to a more intimate fellowship with you and with each other. We ask that you'd make that true for us as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We ask that you would bless us this week as we go. 